what's up, everybody? It is a beautiful June day here in the nation's capital, and I am pleased to be bringing you another episode of this Roman Today podcast. My name is Graham Nichols, and I have the pleasure of bringing to you the athletics resident prospect guru, Scott Wheeler. Scott, I know you've got a young one at home. You've got the NHL 2021 draft just around the corner. Things have to be crazy. How are you doing, man? I'm doing well. I appreciate that. It's been a crazy few weeks. He's, I mean, we we're just talking before I hopped on here, but he's five weeks old now and starting to develop a little bit of a personality. And I actually was lucky enough to take the first four weeks off. So I've really only been back at work this week. Um, so just trying to sort of get back into the swing of things, but get back into the grind, finish up my, my final draft ranking, which was mostly done before I left, but now it's about sort of making some minor adjustments, uh, especially after U 18s, which kind of happened while I was gone, uh, or at least the, the second half of the tournament did. Um, so just, yeah, tweaks, figuring things out, uh, tr- trying to sort of finalize my list, make some final phone calls. And then hopefully, uh, within the next couple of weeks, it'll be rolled out. I'm planning on having it fully written. It's, it's a mammoth. It's like 20,000 words, right. But it's it, planning to have it sort of fully written early next week. And then it's going to take our editors a few days to get it all sorted and get it published and get it edited. And it's probably going to be a, a multi-editor deal because reading through the entire thing can be a little taxing on them, but it, it'll be out if not next week, the week after that. So it, it's coming. Obviously the pandemic has created some pretty unique circumstances for the 2021 NHL draft. How has this affected your preparation and how have you evolved and, and changed what you've had to do to evaluate this year's draft class? Yeah. I mean, it, it's changed significantly. This has been, the weirdest pro this is my eighth or ninth time doing this on sort of a full-time serious basis in terms of the number of draft classes that I've done scouting in some form or another on. Uh, and it, this is unlike any year that I've had doing my job. It's my fourth year doing it at the athletic. Uh, and certainly since I started at the athletic, I mean, normally I have a dedicated travel budget, right? So normally I spend a good chunk of the year on the road. All of that was taken away this year. The only trip I've made in the last year and a half basically now was my trip to Edmonton for the world juniors this year. Uh, so everything else has happened on tape and that's a blessing and a curse in a lot of ways. Uh, I've watched a lot more video, like by a magnitude of three or four times than I normally would. I've made a lot more phone calls, probably by a magnitude of two or three times, uh, just sort of asking around. I mean, you'll see it in, in the, the piece that's coming, but th- there will be more sourcing than usual, uh, more quotes from the people that know these people and from industry sources and that kind of a thing than usual. Uh, so it, it has changed it for sure. I've had to go about learning about these kids differently. Some of them, uh, in terms of a couple of the OHL players, haven't even played yet. So on my list of 100 uh, prospects that will be released. There's four or five of those kids that still haven't even played hockey this year. So that's a huge factor because those OHL kids in their 16 year old year, it's just so hard to evaluate that year. It's a very much transitional year for them as they enter the league. Um, so learning about those kids, trying to project those kids forward is a challenge, but by and large, I would say I'm, I'm really comfortable with where things are at in terms of how that process has played out, how it has worked in, in terms of the work that I do. I love doing video work. I love digging into the data points on these kids, all of that. So that part of it is just stronger than ever in terms of where I'm at on these kids. And then by and large, other than the OHL, every league, even through this weird year, played a a fairly reasonable regular schedule. It may be 30 or 40 games instead of 50 or 60 games for some of the kids, but 30 or 40 games is still a significant amount of sort of 
research that you can do on these kids and dig in on them. And I'm not watching every single game that all of these kids play anyways. So uh, in terms of my job, I, I still feel really good with where I'm at. And I think NHL teams and the scouts I've talked to are starting to feel pretty comfortable with just where they, where they're at on this draft class. And there was a lot of fear about how this draft was going to play out and how difficult it was going to be for NHL clubs. But I think they've all kind of come around on it. And certainly U18 worlds happening and, and taking place helped a little bit in terms of just some final uh, sort of discoveries on some of these kids and some final research and that kind of a thing. So uh, it'll be interesting to see where this draft class is at five, 10 years from now in terms of looking back, okay, were there a lot of mistakes? What happened who made hay, who didn't, that kind of a thing. But uh, I, I still think it's it's been a, a better year for evaluation than a lot of people maybe thought it was going to be six, seven months ago when leagues were just starting to get off the ground, really. See, to me, that's interesting because obviously, like, over time, you and the scouts are going to become obviously more comfortable with your own valuations of this year's draft. But you just look at the small sample size. The OHL didn't play at all. You look at some of the industry consensus, and it seems like there is a lot of fluidity in terms of who could go where, uh, specifically in the top 10, top 15, top 20. And it just seems like there's, there's more unknown in terms of where players can fit specifically, but just in terms of like sample sizes and and players not having a huge sample of games to play, it just seems like there is an opportunity for players to slide or, or good players to fall through the cracks. Yeah, I, th- I think part of the reason that there's such a lack of consensus in terms of the public sphere and, and the way that those kinds of boards have played out is just because of this draft being weird. I, I think it's easy to look at it and say, oh, it's the year that's impacting that. But I honestly think it's the players themselves who are sort of having an impact on that. I mean, we know that now that Owen Power is almost certainly going to go first overall, but that wasn't a sure thing for a long time. And then after him, you look at the top sort of eight to 10 names that are going to follow him. And they're all very weird, quirky players. There, there's all there's something in almost every single one of them, except maybe Matthew Beneers. Now he's got an injury that makes you think. Um, but there's something in almost every single one of them that makes you pause. And we normally don't see that at the top of the draft. In the last four or five years of doing this, typically the kids at the top of the draft have been pretty well-rounded players. Uh, they've been pretty projectable players in terms of the kinds of skills that they have that are going to push them forward. And this draft is just filled with a bunch of kind of weird kids. Uh, Brant Clark is unlike any prospect I've ever watched. Simon Edmondson, there are all sorts of things that could go right for him. And there are all sorts of things that could go wrong with him. Kent Johnson, who's probably the most skilled forward in the draft, is also a really skinny, scrawny kid who's got his own question marks. Jesper Wallstadt, who was the clear sort of this goalie is going to be a top 10 pick all year struggled in his last four or five starts of the season. So there's all sorts of things that are happening with each of these kids that make you pause. And then suddenly it's okay. Scout X and scout Y feel completely differently about them. And I think that has more to do with their play and some of the quirks in terms of their skill sets than it does maybe with how many games they played this year, for example. Do you think the circumstances of this year's draft put a ton of pressure on teams to get this year's pick right? I look at teams in the top 10, top 15, like the Ottawa Senators, teams that can't afford to really miss with their first round pick. How much pressure is on those teams this year? 
There's a lot, especially in that group of 10 or 11 kids at the top. Some teams only think that that group's eight or nine. I think it's a little bit wider than that in terms of the kids that excite me in this draft and when that sort of threshold is for, for the, the fall off point, if you will. Um, so there are a couple more players that I really like. I really like Cole Sillinger, for example, who isn't really in that group of eight or nine names for most teams. He's more of a 10 to 15 guy for most teams. I really like Chaz Lucius, another kid who's kind of at the back of that, that list for most team so there are players that are that are definitely gettable in terms of that sort of top 10 top 15 range and players who really I think have a chance to be very very good NHL players but again that they all have question marks I mean I, I rattled off five or six of them already who in, in terms of kids who are a little bit weird but Chaz Lucius spent the entire year with a knee injury recovering from a very serious surgery on a lesion in his knee and then came back and had to miss U18s because of a fever. So there's just so much that's gone on with these kids in this sort of weird year. And that now the pressure's on teams because I mean, Ottawa is a team that's been in this range a lot in, in terms of picking high at the draft in recent years. But if you're a team that's here for one year and you're hoping to not be in this situation again next year, it's a weaker draft than usual and it's got a lot of unusual players in it. So if you miss, if you take a Simon Edvinson and he craters out, or if you take a chance on a Luke Hughes, who's now injured and dealing with a serious foot injury and that injury lingers or anything goes wrong with one of these kids, you've put your organization in a really tough spot in a key moment. And that's true every year, but I think this year more than others, there's just room for error with a lot of these kids that makes it a, a risky pick almost no matter who you're picking. The Ottawa Senators have a really small scouting staff. Based off the circumstances surrounding this year's draft, do you think teams or any distinct teams have an advantage going in? Does it reward teams that have bigger scouting staffs or bigger analytical departments? How do you see this weighing out? I definitely think teams that have made an investment in data and analytics and in sort of younger scouts who are a lot more comfortable with doing video work are going to be in a better position. I've spoken to scouts anonymously who've said, look, I've got four or five guys in my organization who we've had to teach how to scout on tape. Uh, And that's not an uncommon thing that has had to happen this year. So that is a big deal. Uh, it's, it's a game changer for a lot of people not being in the rink and getting into that routine. And a lot of these guys are, are sort of workhorses who spend their entire year in hotels and having that taken away really has changed the way that they do their jobs. So I definitely think that teams have the larger staffs, the teams that are really invested in terms of doing video work and work with some of the data analytics uh, sort of organizations or companies that, that do work in the space or that have developed their own software. Uh, those teams are going to benefit this year because it will just reduce the margin for error. It will give you more information and you'll be able to trust the pick you're making a little bit more firmly than the next guy. So I, I do think that's a factor. I think those high budget teams, those teams that spend big on scouting and development will be in a better position than a team like say Ottawa that typically has their guys sort of boots on the ground in rinks and have very sort of small tight knit, tight knit centralized staff. Last year, the Columbus Blue Jackets turned some heads with their first-round selection. This year, obviously because of the wrinkles created by the pandemic, 
do you anticipate there being any kind of like off the board selections early on or do you anticipate teams playing a little bit safe and sticking more with like more of the familiar names that we've seen be rumored for the top 10, 15 picks? Well, I think the two goalies are wild cards for sure. I mean, any, anytime there's a goalie that will go in the first round that can shake things up. If a team decides to take Jesper Wallstadt in the top six or seven picks, and then another team decides to take Sebastian Kosa at 10th, 11th, 12th overall, then suddenly you're going to have some openings for other teams who are thinking, oh my God, I wasn't expecting forward A or defenseman B to be available at 16th, 17th overall. Like you're going to have a Peyton Krebs, Cole Caulfield kind of situation in the teens where suddenly some very good players are available to you because a player you weren't expecting to go high did. I do think there are a couple of other names in in and around the draft that could sort of surprise in that range as well. Matthew Coronado with the Chicago Steel is a kid who I think in the public sphere, everybody kind of expects to go in the teens or in the early 20s. And I've talked to NHL clubs that think he's a top 10 pick. So I think if Coronado goes really high, you could see another one of those names sort of linger on the board for a little bit longer. Um, so there, there are sort of those names around. And then later in the draft, there are kids who I'm quite frankly, a little bit lower on that I think have a chance to go very high. And by that, I mean, a, a Daniil Chaika, a kid who's been a name for a long time. He's one of the older kids in the draft. He's got more of a track record under his belt, which I think benefits him in this draft class. I think the older kids who've played more junior hockey and have had eyeballs on them for longer, it will make NHL teams feel a little bit more comfortable making that selection. So the fact that this would have been his third year instead of his second year, uh, had he played in the OHL this year, the fact that he's played in a Memorial Cup uh, when all eyes are on him and every scout in the building is there to watch him and his teammates in Guelph. Those things will will favor a player like Danil Chaika, who I think could probably go in the teens when I think he's more of a second or third round guy. Um, so so there is there are little things like that that are creeping into the conversation. Xavier Bourgeau uh, in the QMJHL is another player who it, this year got to play his third year in the QMJHL because he's a little bit on the older side of the draft. He's a 2002 instead of a 2003. And I think players like that are, are really well positioned. Ryder Korzak's another one out in the WHL. So uh, that sample size, the larger the sample size, the better. So if you're a player who was injured last year in your first year in junior hockey and then didn't get to play a big sample size this year, you're putting yourself in a tough spot by no fault of your own in terms of getting picked, especially if you're not a top prospect. Like if you're a Connor Lockhart for the Erie Otters or a Ty Voigt for the Sarnia Sting who did not play a single game of hockey this year, you might be a darn good player, a, a first or second round talent. Those kids are very, both of those kids are very skilled, but it's going to be hard for an NHL club to take you inside that top 64, right? Like you could be available fifth, sixth, seventh round just because nobody's seen you play and they're going to look at their board when push comes to shove and they're going to pick the kid that they saw two weeks ago. Um, so all of that is is going to be a factor and, and could really sort of shake up who's available when and and why they're available. Do you think that'll create more opportunity for those good drafting teams to find those mid-round sleepers that you've just been referring to? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I think teams that have done their research on some of those players, the Ty Voigts and, and, and the Connor Lockharts, and to to the same degree, even someone who played at U18s but didn't play this year, like uh, Ryan Winterton or, I mean, Chase Stillman went over to Denmark and played in their junior league, but that Denmark Junior League is virtually unscoutable. So if for if you if you're taking Chase Stillman, you're basically going off of seven games that he played for Canada at, at under t- under 18s, right? So 
there's due diligence, there's cracks to fill there that you can do with those kids, whether it's getting to know them. I mean, Chase is an easy kid to get to know because his dad's a coach in the NHL at this point uh, with Arizona. But yeah, there's definitely people and people I've spoken to who've said, look, we've, we've gone all in on studying the guys who nobody else is studying. Like we've made it a priority for us to go and get to know a little bit better some of those OHL kids so that there's no stone left unturned. And then I think there's other teams that just have decided they're not going to do that. If they, if they haven't seen a kid play in 14, 15 months, they're, they're, they just won't draft them. So all of that enters the conversation. But again, that's a pretty small list. Like there's probably a dozen or so, maybe two dozen OHL players out of a crop of 400 potential players that you might have watched um, who, who haven't played. So it, it still is a pretty small list. And the, the, guy, the kids who are going to go in the first or second round out of the OHL, all those kids went over to Europe and played anyways. Like the Brennan Offmans, the Mason McTavishes, those kids got deals over in Europe and spent the whole year playing over there anyways. So they, they had no trouble getting eyeballs on them. Back in February, you ranked the Senators as having the third best farm system in the NHL. A number of the prospects that you mentioned within that article have graduated to the NHL level. Tim Stutzel, Shane Pinto, among others. What do you see the Senators doing with the 10th overall pick? Do you think they draft for positional need? Do you think they take the best player? What would you like to see the Senators do at 10? Well, it sounds cliche, but that that skill component is the biggest need for me when I look at their pool. They have a ton of guys who are going to be middle six NHL forwards and a ton of guys who are going to fight and scrap to be a second pairing defenseman. Uh, Like it's a long, long list. But when you look at the top of their lineup and the players who project to be at the top of their lineup long term, as good as Tim Stutzla is, as good as he's going to be, as good as Brady Kachuk is, those guys are not the one, two that wins a Stanley Cup. And it's, it's that, that dynamic quality that you're going to need at the top of your lineup. There are teams that do it. There are teams that, I mean, the St. Louis blues had a four lines of second line forwards, right? Like that was basically their composition. I mean, Ryan O'Reilly is a true star, but they were by and large, a team of just very good forwards. And those are the kinds of players that, that the senators have coming in spades. They're going to have no issues long-term with their depth down the middle. They've got options at the wing. They've got options. They're going to have, eight, nine really quality, quality players. And then you're trying to find that game breaker that sort of adds another piece to a Brady Kachuk and a Tim Stutzla to, to give you that, okay, now we've got guys that, that are tough to handle for the opposition's top pairing rather than the opposition just kind of rolling their lines with us. Um, so in this draft, it's tough because there isn't really that guy and especially not that guy where they're where they're picking at 10 um but that doesn't mean that that there isn't going to be a a sort of high skill player there and if i'm them i would be reluctant to go if you're sort of picking between forward a and forward b and forward b is that sort of versatile uh more well-rounded player in the vein of a a Shane Pinto or a Josh Norris who already do that for you i would be tempted to maybe take a, a a cut to, to really take a chance on a, a kid who might, if he hits, be a, a, a sort of true dynamic threat for you. And there are players like that who come to mind. I mean, Chaz is a player who I mentioned who I'm very fond of. He's not the greatest skater in the world, but his ability to shoot and to score and to handle the puck and to get open is at the very top of this draft class. And if he can become a 30 goal scorer, which I think he's more than capable enough of doing after a couple of years in college at the University of Minnesota, 
then that's a player who provides huge value uh, and a player that that adds a different element to your team and gives you another option and gives you a power play threat and that sort of top of the lineup option. So he's a player who comes to mind. I mean, Kent Johnson, if he's available, I, I don't want to spoil my list here, but if you followed my work, you'll know that I'm very, very high on Kent Johnson. Kent Johnson would be the best case scenario for a team like the Sens. I, I think he's the most skilled player in this draft over a Cole Sillinger, over a Chaz Lucius, over a Fabian Michel. Uh, you go down the list. He is, in my opinion, the most skilled player in this draft and the, the, has that sort of highlight quality game to him. And he's not going to give it to you every shift. He's not going to be the most consistent player on your team. He will drift to the perimeter a little bit too much. But the Sens have so many guys that do all of that other stuff in the middle of the ice that having a guy who can zip around and make that one play a game that just wows you and creates a goal that's what they need more than anything. At least that's what I think they need more than anything. So I I think Kent falling, I'm not sure whether he'll be available there, but some teams do worry about his sort of how skinny he is. He's, he's kind of like an Elias Pedersen type where Elias was kind of a rake when he entered the league. Um, And Elias has been able to add muscle since then, but that's kind of what Kent's physique looks like. So teams do worry about that. And then teams worry that he puts himself in trouble a little bit too often trying to do too much. He, he loves the high skill play. He wants to beat you one-on-one. He wants to go outside in on you. He wants to toe drag through his feet and go to his backhand. And that's the kind of player that he is. But I think that with a Tim Stutzla, who also loves doing all of those things, really would give them a different element. If, if Kent hits, he's going to be a, a 70 to 80 point player in the league. And there are maybe one or two other players in this draft class who are capable of becoming that kind of a player. So I think Kent would, should, and should be target number one, if you will. And then after that, you get into the, the Chaz Luciuses, the Cole Sillingers, those types of players. Do you think Dylan Gunther will be available in that range? Yeah, I doubt it. I, I think he'll be gone by then. There are teams that think he's a top five pick. I think he'll probably be off the board. If anything, his, kind of good but not great performance at under 18 worlds may have pushed him out of that top five um so maybe he's sort of slips a little bit and maybe if one of those goalies goes up in that range then suddenly you're having a little bit of a different conversation but i would not bet on it what if wallstead's available at 10 in the past the senators certainly haven't been hesitant to go out and get themselves a goaltender in the draft if he's available at 10 do you think that's something the senators could pursue yeah, I mean it's a, it's a hole for sure. It would fill another need for sure, and he's he's one of those goalies where I wouldn't be afraid to do it. Uh, again, I, he had those sort of four or five tough starts at the end of the year that sort of left a little bit more of a sour taste in in some scouts' minds. But before that, he looked like, and I've written this in in my piece that when it'll come out, but he looked like a goalie robot. Like he had never had a hiccup ever in his career, and he'd done it while playing up to age groups or up a pro level earlier than he should be or earlier than anyone ever has. So he's a truly impressive goalie. He doesn't have the athleticism, that sort of freakish athleticism that Askarov had a year ago and that the goalies like Marc-Andre Fleury have, but he's got that just poise in the net that I think is actually more common in today's top NHL goalies than those other guys, right? Like the the Jonathan Quicks and the Marc-Andre Fleury's are still the exception. And by and large, today's NHL goalies just swallow everything that's thrown at them and don't have to make those reactionary saves. And that's kind of what Wallstead is. He's just always on his line. He's never out of position. He rarely ends up in those sort of scramble situations. Uh, So there's a ton to like there. But I think, again, I mean, if 
if all of this sort of top five or six forwards have been taken and you're left with defensemen, I'm not sure that the Sens need uh, another really good D prospect as much as they need a, a really good goalie. So if, if, if you're choosing between a couple of the top D there, maybe you, you pass and go Wallstead. But I do think if one of those sort of high skill forwards is available, it would be tough to pass on him to take a chance on a goalie. Let's talk about some of those defensive prospects for a second. When listeners found out that you were coming on the podcast, one of the questions I received was, how does last year's class stack up against this year's? Where does Jake Sanderson fit relative to some of the defensemen who may be available at the top of this year's class? Well, I think Owen Power is a better prospect than than Sanderson and Drysdale were. Um, I mean, your listeners will know that I actually preferred Drysdale to Sanderson. I hear it from them once a week. Um but they're, I mean, if, if I'm evaluating today based off of the years that Drysdale and Sanderson both just had, which were both great years, uh, I still think Owen at this point in his career is a better prospect than both of them. After that, it gets a little dicier, right? Because I, I think Brant Clark and Luke Hughes at their ceiling uh, are, are higher ceiling players than Jake Sanderson and Jamie Drysdale are. But I also think that Jake Sanderson for sure is the safest of those four to, to become what we think he's going to become. And Drysdale is probably the second. So th- there is some risk associated with a Brant Clark and a Luke Hughes, but I do think that the, the sort of boom potential of both of those players is higher than the two defensemen from a year ago. And then the same is probably true of Simon Edvidson, who is very, very much a boom bust proposition. And I've actually soured a little bit on Edvinson. He started the year at two on my board and he will be a fair ways away from number two on my final board. But Edvinson's that, that he he's that archetype in terms of if he makes it and he figures it all out, he's going to be a star and probably an equal or better defender than both the 2d from last year but if he doesn't he's not even going to be anywhere near what jake sanderson and jamie drysdale are are going to end up being and i'm pretty confident both of them are going to sort of reach their ceiling or at least get fairly close at this point so yeah i don't i don't know i think that the the d after owen are probably higher ceiling guys but i'm not sure that if if i had a gun to my head i'd take any of them over him just because over a jake sanderson just because there's some risk there. And and we know that Jake is going to be a staunch transition two-way type who maybe isn't the most gifted player in the world in the offensive zone, but gives you everything else that you look for in a top defenseman everywhere else on the ice. So we don't, we, we can't look at Brant Clark as much as I love Brant Clark. I mean, he's been in my top five all year and he's going to stay there on this last board. I think he's an incredible talent, but he's, uh, he's the king of the quirky players. Like he's a skinny, unathletic kid. His knees knock when he skates. Like those are just not things that you ever think of, of being traits in a top five pick. Right. So there's, there's a lot to the puzzle with a Brant Clark that's going to need to sort itself out for him to be as good as he can be. So that, that those questions just, I mean, it, part of it's because they've had an extra year, but those questions aren't, those questions don't really linger anymore with a Jake Sanderson. Sticking with Simon Edmondson for a second, recently for The Athletic, you had a nice little profile on Edmondson and you detailed what he can and cannot do well. For the listeners who haven't had an opportunity to look at that piece, and I highly encourage those listeners to read your piece, what are some of the drawbacks to his game? Why is he slid in your rankings a little bit? 
Yeah. So the drawbacks for me are that you've got this kind of haywire player who doesn't really know what he's doing out there. Right. The, the package is is exciting. The package is a six foot four player who's got incredible hands. And you never see you sometimes see that in forwards, but you almost never see that in defensemen. So he can break ankles. He can spin off of pressure. He's excellent in transition. He will carry the puck as far as he'll be allowed to carry the puck in terms of trying to exit his own zone and beat not one, but like three guys coming at him to exit the zone himself instead of passing to the available guy. He'll walk off the line and try to make a play, but he also makes a lot of mistakes and his aggressive style offensively and defensively can get him in trouble. He'll chase hits and he'll put himself out of position. And then inside the offensive zone, as good as he is with his hands and as a playmaker, he's actually a very good passer he's not a great shooter. So his shot has never been a threat for him. He does almost never takes slap shots and his wrist shot comes off a little bit soft, which is surprising considering all the leverage that he should have being six foot four. Um, so there's, there's just some, there's some sort of bizarreities to his game, if you will. And over the course of this season, he was also just a little less productive than I expected him to be. He was good, but not great when he played at the junior level. I was blown away by him in my first two viewings of him during the SHL preseason. But then once the regular season started, I thought he was good and, and still had that those sort of flashes of fearlessness there, but wasn't great. And then he finally, into the under-18s, had begun to really get a hold of everything and put it all together after he'd spent some time in hockey al in the second tier pro league there. So it was just a little bit of a mixed bag for him. And I didn't feel that way about some of the other prospects in that sort of top 10 or 11 players this year. So when push comes to shove, it's hard to rank him at the front of that group where I've had him at points this year uh, when I just feel a little bit more sure about some of the other players, but he'll be gone before. I mean, once people see where I have him ranked, I, I think I say it in his, in his sort of evaluation, he'll be gone before where I have him. Uh, like he's going to be a top five, six, seven pick, I think. But there, there are there, there's definitely concerns there in terms of okay, you've got a six foot four defenseman who has all the confidence in the world and all the skill in the world, but is he actually being effective out there? And what's it going to take to get him to maybe change the way that he plays a little bit? Scott, recently you wrote a piece profiling. Aturati, a guy who is projected to be one of the top picks, if not the top pick in this year's draft. In your piece, you kind of highlighted the struggles, the the mental and physical struggles that Ratty has had to deal with in in this draft year. And I thought it was fascinating. You know, you look at a player who's just he should thrive. He has all the talent in the world, and and for whatever reason, he just couldn't live up to the expectations that come with being considered for the first overall pick. If you're a pro team evaluating ratty are there any concerns that like here's a guy who struggled to live up to the expectations and he put a lot of pressure on himself to perform in his draft year and when it didn't come it just kind of weighed on him even more and it just kind of built a snowball of negativity would you have reservations as a pro team or would you have any reservations just in the sense that if he doesn't get off to a good professional start over in north america would you have any concerns that those expectations and, and just that self-criticism could, could negatively impact his development? Well, I think it comes down to the trust you have with your, with your development team. If you've got a really good team in place and you know the way that they handle players is the right way to handle players, 
I think it's almost encouraging to try and take a player like Atu and say, hey, we're, we're going to not fix this player because he's not broken, but we're going to handle him carefully. We're going to handle him properly. We're going to give him all the tools he needs to succeed. And maybe we can get something out of him that another organization couldn't. And then you have to ask yourself, okay, at what point in the draft are we comfortable making that determination, right? Like at what point does player A and player B separate themselves from one another? Um, but I, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't think it's it, some of the issues that he's had in terms of losing his love for the game, kind of falling out of love with the sport, questioning himself mentally. I, I don't think those are going to linger long-term per se, especially now that he's a regular in that pro lineup. I think part of the reason that he struggled so much was a, all of the pressure of being labeled the first overall pick two years ago when he came up as a 15, 16 year old and was excellent at the U 20 level there, but it really started last year. It it started late last season into the summer before his draft year, when things just started to go south for him and he couldn't work his way into, into the pro lineup. And all he wanted to do was play for the top team. And I think part of that was just him putting too much pressure on himself and him viewing the U 20 league as, as kind of a snub of sorts. Like he just didn't want to be there. Um, But now that he's a regular in that lineup and they're committed next year to having him take on a more uh, sort of important role. Like he played kind of a fourth line role this year for them. I think that will be the start of progress for him. And I don't know whether that progress makes him a top 10 pick when we do this redraft, uh, five years from now, but I do think it will still help him along and it will sort of get him back on track in terms of building confidence. And then there's a lot of tools there. There are a lot of pro tools still to Aturatu's game, even with all the struggles, even with the lack of production that he's had at the pro level, there are positives there and, and there's room for growth and all of the things that made him exciting two years ago, still, I mean, to a lesser extent now, but still make him exciting in, in his own way. So I think once you get outside of that top sort of 15, maybe even around 15, that he gets he gets really interesting. And that's just the reality of a kid who probably never should have been a first overall pick and probably should have kind of been in this range all along, but had a, a, a good couple of months at a very early age that thrust him into the limelight. Do you have any personal favorites, guys who are projected to go in like the mid-late first round that you think a couple of years from now we'll sit back and look back and say, man, that guy should have really gone higher than he did. Yeah, I love Logan Stankoven. I mean, he's five foot eight, but he's a stocky five foot eight. And he's been described to me by one source who I quote in, in my piece as superhuman in the offensive zone. Like he's just one of those sort of game breaking players. And then the other thing about Logan and part of the reason he wore an A for Canada at under 18s is that for a smaller kid, he's a feisty, hardworking, active without the puck. Like he's not a liability. And the worry with those smaller players is always that, okay, defensively, what is a Cole Caulfield going to give me? And is his offense so much greater than his defensive liability that that he'll sort of fill the gap and I mean Cole's not a great example because he has actually in the last year improved his defensive game a lot but Logan has never had those questions so the fact that he hasn't had those questions and he's extremely talented I think he's a kid who's not going to go in the teens but probably should go in kind of the late teens and if he's available 20 30 40 you take him <laughs> um, because I, I, I think he's a kid who's going to fill the net at every level he plays at uh, and eventually going to be a, a 25 goal scorer, a 25, 30 goal scorer in the NHL. So uh, Logan's a player 
who I would definitely keep an eye on. Uh, I really like Sean Barron's. Uh, who's a, another sort of smaller player who I think will dip in the draft. Barron's was really the only bright spot for USA at under 18s after they lost like half their roster to injury and illness and protocols. Uh, he was asked to do a lot and he was one of the only players who stepped up and he is just a fabulous two-way player despite being sort of five foot nine, five foot 10. So the expectation with those kids is always that, okay, they're going to struggle to defend the rush. They're going to struggle in board battles, yada, yada, yada. But he's a, he's a competitor. Uh, he's involved in those areas. And then he's got that sort of dynamic transition skill uh, and offensive zone skill where he can quarterback a power play, et cetera, et cetera. And there just aren't many guys who are going to be available probably in the second round who can quarterback a power play. Right. So it's, those are the kinds of guys that I like to target in that range. You can get your depth guys and your third liners through free agency in August for a million bucks every year, but it's the Barons is and, and the Stankovens kids who are our first round talents who, for whatever reason, whether it's size in their case or uh, another reason for some other players, those are the kids who I'd be targeting in that sort of second, third round range if they're available. Uh, and both of those kids could still go in the first round, but if, if they don't, uh, those are the kids I'd be targeting in that kind of a range. The Senators do have two second round picks, so maybe that's a player that we can keep an eye on. But earlier, Scott, you mentioned that Kent Johnson was a prospect who would be a best case scenario for the Senators at 10. Do you have a worst case scenario for the Senators at 10? There are some big believers in Fabian Liesel, uh, and I have some real questions about Fabian. I think there will be two or three better players, better prospects available there. So if they really decide, hey, we want to take the, the flashy skater who can fly down the ice and has scored some of the best goals in this draft class this year, then that's their prerogative. But I, I, I would be shy at 10 of taking Fabian. Um, so that's that's one kid. I don't think... He's a terrible pick there. I, I really do think he's got a chance to be one of the most skilled, talented, high octane players. I mean, he is an incredible skater and, and has skill to make plays at pace, but it's, and works frankly, very hard defensively and is a little bit of a puck thief as well, but he, he can force it and he can put himself in tough spots. And uh, he reminds me of a lot of those sort of skilled high tempo players who just have never really figured it out. I mean, players like Kasperi Kapanen, Zach Sinish, these guys who kind of took time to figure it out. And he's got more skill than, than those guys did at the same age. But uh, if, if I'm taking him in the top 10, I, I, I do think you could look back at say a Cole Sillinger, if he's available or a Chad Lucius, if he's available and say, we should have took that guy instead of Fabian. So he's he's one of the kids who I'd probably steer clear of there. Other than that, no, not really. I, I think the top 10, 12, 13 picks are actually going to go more or less according to, to that grouping this year. Like, I don't think there's going to be a, a Moritz Sider who slides up and goes sixth overall. And I mean, Moritz has has shown proven to a lot of people that he wasn't a bad pick at the time, but I don't think there's going to be that kind of a surprise with this group. Um, Coronado was one of the, I mean, I mentioned him earlier. He's a kid who I think could surprise and slide up into that group and would be a bit of a reach there, but I think Coronado's a great player. So uh, we'll see uh, really other than, than taking someone like a Coronado or a Fabian, who I think are really good players in that sort of 10 to 20 range, but, but maybe not right at 10, uh, I, I don't think there's a ton of huge mistakes to be made for the Sens uh, that high. Uh, Atu is, is, I guess, is an option there. 
I think Atu at 10 would be high. And I think there are teams that would consider taking him once that sort of top eight or nine players are gone. I do think there's a lot of risk in taking Atu. So maybe that's a player, but th- those are probably the two or three names that come to mind as, okay, if they took this kid, I would probably, probably pretty firmly believe that there were better options. Earlier in this podcast, you touched upon the fact that the Senators seem to like these safe floor players, guys who can play well at both ends of the ice. Pierre Dorian has already gone on record as saying, we want to draft the best players who can help us win. They won't necessarily draft the highest skilled guy. They sometimes prefer guys who have safer floors. One of the names that we haven't really touched upon at this point is Mason McTavish, a local product. Do you anticipate him being available to the Senators at 10? I don't think he'll be available. If he were, I think he's a good pick there. Uh, I don't think he's the best case scenario per se, but I think he's a darn good outcome there. Mason is, I I mean, I wrote another story on him recently and got to know him and his dad a little bit through that process, but Mason's a great kid who works his tail off and has a ton of skill and he's 200 pounds and he can rip the puck. He's going to have to work to, to stay fit. He's one of those kids who just kind of still carries around some baby fat. But other than that, if he can stay in shape and, and stay active in terms of being at, at sort of the top of his game and fitness level is, is high, yeah, I mean, it's all there. Like he, he's, he's going to be a fan favorite. He's physical. He's tenacious. He can play center. He can play the wing. And he can rip the puck into the net. So those players are beloved in no matter where they play. Uh, and I think he's going to be no different. But I do think at this point, he's, he's going to be gone before 10. It's not completely out of the question that he's there, but more than likely, I think he's gone. Scott, before I let you go, I wanted to ask you about the 2020 NHL draft. In your team valuations that looked at the picks made by each organization, you referred to the Senators as losers after days one and two of the NHL draft. Now that we've had a year to reflect on who the Senators have picked, I'm curious, have your opinions changed? What do you make of last year's class? Oh, that's the million dollar question. I mean, Jake and, and Tim had great years. So if if they're not right where I had them, they're higher. There, there's no chance that either of those two players rank lower today than they did there. But I, I was a little bit lower on them at the time. They're both better picks now in those slots than I believe that they were at the time. Uh, so that's a boost. I still think taking Levi that high it was a weird weird pick like that's a goalie who could have been available in the seventh round so that struck me as weird I thought Tyler Clevin made progress in some key areas this year but I still feel like that pick was a little too high Uh, and the problem I had by and large with the Sens draft at the time wasn't that they didn't pick good players I actually think they came away from the draft with one of the biggest hauls and I wrote that at the time but I think part of the reason they came away from the draft with one of the biggest hauls was just because they had so many picks. Right. Uh, And relative to where those players were picked, I just felt like all of them, almost all of them were picked a a little bit too high. I mean, Robbie Jarventi, he had a great start to the year, but struggled a little bit from the world juniors onwards, but but still looks probably like a little bit of a better pick there than where I had him at the time. I mean, Igor, I love we everybody. You can't not love Igor. So I'm just pulling for that guy, regardless of where he was picked. But no, it, it was a it was a fine draft. I, I would probably give it a little bit of a better grade today, if if only because Tim had a, had a good year by by sort of my expectations for him, and Jake was the same. So those two picks look better today, and I think the rest of the picks they look fine rather than bad, if you will. Uh, but there are still, I mean, if you go through the list of last year's draft, 
almost all of those picks in the four or five players directly after them, there was a darn good player that was taken. Right. So that's, that was my point of reference in terms of making those comments last year was okay. They picked some good players. A lot of players that were on my board, a lot of players with potential. I like Igor. I like Robbie, all these guys. But when you look at where Ridley Gregg was taken, I think he was still taken today, 10, 20 picks too high. So, so just little things like that. I, I, I thought that there were, better players left on the board and that there were a little bit of missed opportunities. And I still probably think that today, but a lot of those players also had very good years uh, and, and sort of, if not improved their stock to show that they were, they were better picks there than maybe I thought they were. And that's the interesting dynamic with last year's draft, right? Like whether it's you or some of the other pundits, it seems like the constant refrain is that the senators didn't make bad picks necessarily. It's just that when they did make their selections, there are some pretty intriguing options still available to them on the board. Yeah, I, I think that's where it came down to for me, more or less. The NHL draft will be held on Friday, July 23rd and Saturday, July 24th. Scott Wheeler, it, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Hopefully, as the draft gets upon us and is conducted, we'll have an opportunity to reconnect down the road and evaluate what the Senators and the rest of the league did. Really appreciate you coming on the show today. Really appreciate the insights and everything that you do and the hard work that you put in. It's been an anomaly of a year, and uh, I'm really intrigued to see what the Senators and what the rest of the NHL does. But thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Look forward to hearing from you soon.